This podcast is brought to you by Most Valuable Podcasts, leading the league in podcasting entertainment. Welcome in, my friends, to another episode of Behind the Pen. My name is Mike Rankin, and I will be your host for today's show, and I have a full boat for you. Today, I'm by myself, but I have a lot to share with you, specifically within the MLB, because some things and stuff happen, like postseason awards. I'm going to get into that. Maybe you guys have some differing opinions on who won the AL and NL Cy Young Awards, as well as maybe some other things and stuff that I get into today. Also, the Houston Astros, they're making moves, and MLB's hot stove is officially underway. I mean, unless you want to consider R.A. Dickey and Bartolo Colon signing with the Atlanta Braves. I mean, okay, that kind of tickles my fancy. I don't know about you, but right now we're starting to get into it. Winter meetings are approaching rather rapidly, in my opinion, because as a Cubs fan, I'm kind of used to just the long wait after, you know, the postseason. It It seems like the winter meetings take forever to get here, but... The Cubs played until November 2nd this year, and all of a sudden, the baseball offseason hot stove is getting fired up, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm so much looking forward to what's going down. The Yankees. The Yankees made a move with the Astros. I'm going to get into that later on. Probably going to talk some Bulls. Probably going to talk some Bears, as always, but hopefully you can stay tuned for it all. And if you do, and you're listening on blogtalkradio.com backslash Most Valuable Podcast, we thank you. That's where you can find all of our full-length podcasts here at mostvaluablepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Most Valuable Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, at Most Valuable Pod. I'm at Rankin906. And most importantly, please become a patron. Patreon.com backslash Most Valuable Podcasts. If you donate dollar to whatever you can afford per month, we will have the luxury to entertain you more so than we already do. With We, we understand. We understand. We value your time. We value your earnings. And if you want to spend those earnings to us, so we can entertain you more so than we already do. My gosh, we're both winners, right? And we do it for you. If not, that's okay. We thank you all for listening. You guys are the best, especially fans of Behind the Pen. I want to get into so much on tap for today. And, you know, every time I do a Behind the Pen, I have to talk about the Bears. Why? I don't know. I like to be miserable, I guess. But I'm going to do it probably later on. But I want to start with baseball and specifically postseason awards because, holy crap, my Chicago Cubs player, this specific player, is going to be relevant, really, among the best players in the game for years. And they have him under control until 2020, and I couldn't be happier. This man, Chris Bryant, NL MVP award winner, and really, it was well-deserved. It was honest. Like, of course you're going to name Chris Bryant, who was a World Series champion this season, in 155 games, hit 292, was on base at a 385 clip, slugged 554, 39 home runs, 102 RBIs, leading the league in 121 runs scored. So, really, was there any other question that it would be somebody other than Chris Bryant? Because I don't think so. Chris Bryant definitely earned it. Won the World Series this year with the Chicago Cubs, first time in 108 years. I can't say that enough. And it still really hasn't sunk into me that the Cubs are World Series champions, but they are. They're going into 2017. As defenders, right, of the crown. And Theo Epstein's going to walk in out of his month-long bender, right, after, uh, you know, celebrating his win into the winter meetings this season and be like, yo, what's up? I'm running the table this year, boys. What you got for me? And I feel like he's going to be active in the market, but that's not really what we're going to talk about today. I just want to keep going on this Chris Bryant conversation because, man, he's done something really 
there's not many players have done really in the history of the entire game. First, I want to mention, in 2013, he won two major awards in college. He won the Golden Spikes Award, Best Amateur Player in the United States, won the Dick Hauser Trophy, Best College Player in the Nation. And you move on the next year in 2014, Minor League Player of the Year within the Cubs system. 2015, Rookie of the Year in his first season. And then, of course, in 2016, he's the NL MVP and World Series champion. Fourth player to win the Most Valuable Player Award after winning the Rookie of the Year the year before. And he joins company such as Cal Ripken, Dustin Pedroia, and Ryan Howard. Impressive, impressive stuff. And he was able to win all of those awards in consecutive seasons. Are you kidding me? Like, this man does it all. I love it. I love it. What a, what a fantastic, you know, it was totally worth losing 101 games in 2012 to draft Chris Bryant second overall. Also, shout out to the Houston Astros, who I'm going to talk about today in this podcast for taking Mark Appel, pick before him. I, I mean, I'm sitting here saying thank you, but as a Houston Astros fan, I would be super, super pissed because, you know, what happened with Mark Appel, and it was a total disaster, regardless. We're celebrating here in Chicago. You have a successful season. You had Cy Young Award candidates. You had a Manager of the Year candidate. And then you had an MVP candidate. And really, if you want to throw Anthony Rizzo in that conversation, I know he wasn't among the finalists. Rizzo, in my opinion, was at least should be in the conversation. So shout out Anthony Rizzo. But it's Chris Bryant, boys. We're celebrating Chris Bryant. But I want to move on to, good job, Chris Bryant. You're the man. Mike Trout over on the AL side. Mike Trout. Now, guys, I can't stress this enough. What what I mean, like when we're talking Mike Trout, we're we're witnessing a live modern day Willie Mays. And I'm not really trying to exaggerate that fact because Mike Trout does it all. And he's 25 years old, and this is his second MVP award in the AL in five full seasons. Five full seasons. Two MVPs. He's 25 years old. Are you oh my gosh. So I did a little bit of research, and I want to share this with you guys. I mean, his career numbers, 306, 405, 557 slash line. His 162-game average, he's hitting 34 homers a year, 99 RBI a year, 35 doubles a year, 29 stolen bases a year. That's legit out of every single category. Hit hit for power, uh, run, catch, throw. He does it all. He he is the pro. If you're gonna build a baseball player, it's Mike Trout, and Mike Trout has a chance to be among the best ever. And I say that because in five full Major League Baseball seasons, he is already tied. <laughs> oh my god, I can't wrap my brain around this. Tied for 327th in the history of Major League Baseball in terms of WAR. Now, if you're not familiar with WAR, that's really a telling stat where it measures. Your overall player's individual value wins above replacement. So that that takes into account your defensive metrics, what you bring at uh, the plate as a hitter, uh, on the field, on the base paths, what you create to score runs on your own, drive in runs, everything. That's the most telling stat of the most valuable, really, player. It's it's easy, okay? You can look it up for yourself if you need more information, but just take my word for it. Wins above replacement is that stat to judge one of the best, because I, I look at this. Tied for 327th in the history of Major League Baseball. That's going back to 1876, the start of the game, really. 
Now, it, it, what he's able to do, he's averaging 9.6 wins above replacement per season, right? If you take that into account after a five-year span. He's 25 years old, and right now, with his total war, he's around 48.5, roughly, war. That's around the likes of Hall of Famer Kirby Puckett, Mark Teixeira, who just recently retired. He played in 14 Major League Baseball seasons. Bernie Williams, he played in 16 seasons. This guy's played in five, and he's already in that company. So I bring that up because if he if he continues to average the sort of pace that he's on, he's going to be, if he plays just 10 more seasons, right? Just give him the, the, the luxury to play 10 more seasons. We assume and hope to see him much, for much more than that. But if he plays 10 more seasons, he'll be 35. And he, if he can still put up that crazy, look, 9.6 war per season, that's insane. First of all, he's able to do that at the start of his career. But if he's able to maintain that pace, which is asking a lot, yes. But he'll be seventh all time at the end of the day, after 10 years. He would jump above Hank Aaron, Roger Clemens, Stan Musial, Ted Williams. And he would be just below, just a a couple spots below, Ty Cobb, Willie Mays, and Barry Bonds. Guys, he's 25 years old. He turned 25 in August. The sky is the limit for this kid. He could be the best player in the history of Major League Baseball. And that's not really stretching it. It's it's Babe Ruth at the top of that war list. And quite frankly, Mike Trout has the ability to catch him. Now that's a little far-fetched and we can't really see into the future, but I'm just saying, wow, we have something special here with this player. Two, two MVP award. It seems like he's always in that conversation, and it's true. In five full seasons, this man has finished either first or second in MVP voting in consecutive years in his first five seasons. I can go on and on and on and on about the incredible sort of talent that Mike Trout is, but it's like you just assume that he's going to be consistent and just be the best overall player in the game. Ever since he emerged, he he debuted as a 19-year-old, hit five home runs in 40 games, and then totally took off in his rookie season in 2012. His official rookie season, so uh, I just, I love it. I love it. T- young players creating this mold for Major League Baseball nowadays, you have guys like Carlos Correa, right? We mentioned Chris Bryant. Anthony Rizzo is only 26 years old. Addison Russell, obviously, mentioning more Cubs. Corey Seager, Rookie of the Year, 22. Francisco Lindor, World Series MVP candidate if the Indians would have been able to pull that out, potentially. These are young players in this conversation among being the best in baseball. And I love it. I absolutely love it. They're changing the game. They're making the game more exciting. And for fans in younger generations, they can kind of connect to that. And that's what Major League Baseball wants. They want to be able to market their product so they could have the game continue to be at a level of interest where they can, you know, be relevant for years. And uh, this is this is absolutely just the dream. As the years progress, these younger talents kind of emerge with, you know, the advancement of, of science and technology in terms of understanding the human body and, you know, reparations and recovery and injury prevention. They have all of this and the growth and strength. I mean, Bryce Harper, 
I didn't even mention Bryce Harper, and this guy's unreal. I know he had a bad season this year, but you know the kind of stuff that he's able to do with the bat. He's a total game changer, and he's he's 25 too, 24. Love it. Absolutely love it. And that's just the AL and MVP conversation. I want to move on now to the Cy Young Award conversation. Because how about this turn of events? It was between, really, Rick Porcello in the AL and Justin Verlander. And Rick Porcello got 8 of 30 first place votes, while Justin Verlander got 12 of 30 first place votes. Now you're saying, wow, Verlander got more first place votes than the other guys, so why is he not the winner of the Cy Young? Well, I guess some people left him off the ballot, right? And there's this controversy going on saying, well, what the hell, specifically two Tampa Bay writers leading, uh, leaving Verlander off the ballot, which may have cost him the Cy Young. So some people are a little outraged, but I want to address that. Cliff Corcoran, I think I pronounced his name right, Corcoran? Cliff Corcoran, we'll go with that, <laughs> on sportsonearth.com, wrote up a really great piece, and I found this quote for him. He says, both Tampa Bay writers failed to include Verlander on their five-man ballot. That alone did not cost Verlander the award. However, Verlander lost by five points. Both Tampa Bay writers could have listed Verlander fourth, and the Tigers' ace still would have lost to Porcello by one point. As it was, seven other writers listed Verlander fourth or fifth on their ballots. In fact, as many writers had Verlander below second place, including those two Tampa Bay writers, as had him in first place. So Porcello, meanwhile, finished in the top two on 26 ballots to Verlander's 16. So that's telling. That's telling. There's a lot of parody. Now, what is it to you, the fan, I'm asking you, that makes a Cy Young candidate? Is it, you know, performance based on the success of your team as well as, like, obviously numbers? Sure, but how much do you weigh in strikeouts, the win stat, weighted, um, what is it, weak contact? I bring that up because Kyle Hendricks. But really, like, I, I, I'm not sure what these voters are looking at specifically. I know... In my opinion, I think it was Rick Porcello who should have won, and he did, and I'm happy about that. Rick Porcello, what a story. Signs with Boston, has a terrible first season under that contract. They paid him a lot of money, and he kind of crapped the bed in his first year with Boston, but bounces back and wins the Cy Young Award? That's a career changer right there. I know, so, really interesting stuff straight up, but I want to dive into the discrepancies between the two. So the stats really were even, I guess, roughly. For the most part, Verlander and uh, Porcello were around the same in a lot of different categories. But Verlander struck out 254, which led the American League, compared to Rick Porcello's 189. And I guess that's a huge tell, right? Because I know Scherzer won the Cy Young in the NL. Spoiler alert, he had 284 strikeouts. And that was by far the most in Major League Baseball. But you look at the win stat, and I'm not sure how much you want to value the win, but Porcello finished with 22. Porcello had a really, really good year, and I know the win stat is really based on the team and the offensive production that you get. And, you know, I don't know. 
people have a problem with win stats. So I don't like I don't like looking at wins because I just think it it creates a false story of the pitcher's season. But Rick Porcello, 22 wins, that's still very impressive and noteworthy. Verlander had 16. But what I looked at, too, I, I, I dove a little bit further, and I kind of looked at the splits because I was curious to see who maintained really the more consistent kind of approach throughout each month. And Porcello was more consistent, straight up. Verlander struggled in April, had a 5-4-6 ERA, got off to a slow start, and then struggled as well in June, had a 4-7-3 ERA. And in May as well, he sort of, you know, I don't want to call it a struggling month because that's a pretty solid month, especially in the AL. The AL is obviously the tougher league to pitch in. It was close to a 4 ERA, but, I'm, you know, I didn't want to really count that one, but it's it should be worth mentioning. I still I look compared to Porcello. Porcello only had one month with an ERA over four. So he was pretty much dominant throughout the entire Major League Baseball season. Porcello finished with a 315 ERA, a 340 FIP. Now FIP is a stat similar kind of to war in terms of the fact where it's individual performances and not so much. Because ERA, they have inherited runs and some of these stats that you really can't control. FIP takes into account the league you're pitching in, the ballpark you're pitching in, uh, home runs given up, uh, base hits, and and really what you can control as a pitcher. So 340 FIP, keep that in mind, as well as a 1.009 WHIP, walks plus hits per innings pitched, 189 Ks, and led the AL with a 591 strikeout to walk ratio and 223 innings pitched. Now that's some impressive stuff, especially the strikeout to walk ratio. You're not getting guys on base. That also attributes to the positive. Whip. Then you look at Justin Verlander. Porcello finished with a 315 ERA. Verlander finished with a 304. But his FIP was 348. That's a .44 increase from his ERA. I mean, you know, not, not too bad. They're very similar in that regard. Verlander led the American League in a 1.001 whip and led the AL in strikeouts, like I mentioned. So, I mean, those stats alone, okay, he he beat you in Ks, which pretty much won Scherzer, the Cy Young, and the NL. I don't want to put it all on strikeouts, but 284 strikeouts, that's domination. Like, come on, he's a power pitcher, unreal. But Verlander, he's considered a power pitcher, and Verlander, too, came back after struggling really the last couple seasons as a starter. This year put it together, arguably a Cy Young Award winner. But this whole story is so interesting to me because only eight first-place votes were casted for Rick Porcello. And Verlander beats him in terms of leading Major League Baseball in stat categories, and he also beat Porcello in first-place votes. It's a very interesting kind of dynamic there as we look at the AL Cy Young Award winner. It is Rick Porcello, and I agree with the decision. I thought Rick Porcello was the best pitcher consistently throughout the American League just by watching him pitch, not even diving into all the numbers. So I think they did get it right. But it's just, like I said, it's interesting. I want to move on to the National League side of things too because I was paying close attention to that specifically because two of the three candidates were Chicago Cubs players. As you know by now, I'm behind the pen. I'm a pretty big Cub fan. By the way, they won the World Series. You know, whatever. Shout out to 2016 Cubs, who will live forever. But it wasn't a Chicago Cub coming out victorious. It was Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer living up to that mega deal that he signed with Washington 
walking away from what was it, 150 mil or something like that from Detroit and opting to take a seven-year, $210 million contract to sign with the Nationals. Going from the AL to the NL, you knew that transition was going to be a positive one for someone with such electric and power stuff that Verlander has, excuse me, Scherzer has. Max Scherzer, man, I, I, I had a chance to watch him pitch live. I just wanted to share this with you. And if you haven't gotten a chance to do so, I really recommend you do that because he throws, if you want to see a guy who throws 95 miles an hour with relative ease, that's Max Scherzer. And when he wants to, he'll rear back and throw 97, 98 miles an hour. And it's insane. It looks like it's so easy for him to just go, okay, 95 miles an hour on the black. What are you going to do about it? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that contributes to the fact he had 284 strikeouts. Max Scherzer, huge reason why the Washington Nationals won the NL East and got to the ALDS. But, of course, they get bounced first round. Now, you talk about a franchise that is desperate to get out of the uh, divisional series. Boy, I pity the White uh, Washington Nationals fans because that was kind of the Cubs for a few years there. Well, in 07 and 08, they couldn't get past the NLDS. So, But, I mean, in Washington, it's a little bit worse. But I, I, I digress here. Max Scherzer lives up to the hype. Wins his second career Cy Young Award, his first in the National League. Really impressive stuff on that side of things. Let's look at his stats here in 2016. Was dominant. Led the NL in innings pitch at 228. 34 starts. He had a sub-3 ERA at 296. Led the ER, uh, in the NL in strikeouts at 284. Led the NL in whip in .98. Led the NL in strikeouts to walk ratio, 507. Now, I can't argue with those numbers. You, you just can't. He was so dominant throughout the season. I'm, I was rooting for Kyle Hendricks, specifically Kyle Hendricks, because I just love the way he pitches. He's the professor out there. But, you know, MLB voters look at pure dominance, to be quite honest with you. And if you look at Kyle Hendricks, Kyle Hendricks finished with an MLB best 2-1-3 ERA and a 0.979 whip, I mean, that that's impressive. And really, to me, what I saw for Kyle Hendricks throughout the entire 2016 season was his ability to induce weak contact. Really, guys weren't hitting the ball hard off of Kyle Hendricks. He was able to locate. He had such great movement with that changeup specifically, and he's able to locate his two-seam fastball on the black. I mean, he's just so fun to watch as a pitcher because you don't really see guys like Kyle Hendricks who have such success as he does with the repertoire. I mean, he throws 89, he tops out at 91, and he's still getting guys out consistently, and he was their best pitcher this year next to John Lester. And John Lester actually finished ahead of Kyle Hendricks, and maybe rightfully so. John Lester, one, was fantastic in the postseason, and I'm not sure how much that goes into a guy. I doubt barely at all. But for the most part, John Lester was that rock and is that rock in the Cubs rotation. He's He was fantastic of that six-year, $155 million contract. So I guess at the end of the day, I really can't complain. You know, I'd like to see, you know, I'm a little greedy here. Obviously, I'm going to be a little greedy. I'd like to see my boy Kyle Hendricks, maybe even John Lester winning the Cy Young. But Max Scherzer was the right choice in this case. On the AL side, well, it's up for debate. 
I'm curious to know your thoughts, so please, if you could, leave a comment down below and tell me. Did the MLB writers get this right? Did the right person win the AL Cy Young Award, and did they win the NL Cy Young Award? Let me know down below. I really appreciate you guys listening, and I had fun talking Major League Baseball postseason awards with you, and just want to mention that Rookie of the Year votes went and winners went to Corey Seager of the NL and Michael Fulmer of the AL, while Terry Francona and Dave Roberts were each manager of the year in their respective leagues. I have no problem with with any of that. Michael Fulmer was a stud in that Tigers rotation. Huge year for him. 306 ERA as a rookie. Tigers found a nice little arm right there, and they need it. They need to go younger. And for Corey Seager, he's one of the best players in baseball. He was an MVP candidate this year. Dave Roberts on the Dodgers side, 28 players on the DL, and he had to kind of deal with whatever Yasiel Puig, whatever that was. He had to deal with him all season. So good job, Dave Roberts. What, led him to fourth straight NL West division crown for the Dodgers? And really, I didn't consider the Dodgers a threat, but here they are going to the NLCS, getting beat by the Cubs. Love it, love it, love it. All right, moving right along. My gosh, 25 minutes into this podcast already. I'm sorry, people. I ramble a lot. I haven't even talked about the Houston Astros yet. Am I going to have enough time to talk Bears and Bulls? I mean, maybe I can leave off the Bears in this podcast, guys. What do you think? Because they make me sad. Anyway, let's let's dive into this MLB news. The Houston Astros are doing stuff and things on the hot stove, man. It's cooking. Major League Baseball season is in full swing here in the offseason as the winter meetings are approaching. And the Astros are wasting little time in building their roster for 2017. And I got to tell you what, first they trade a couple prospect pitching arms to the Yankees for Brian McCann, and then they go out and sign Josh Reddick for agent left-handed outfield bet, four years, $52 million. That's pretty solid. Two solid moves in the same day. I like that. I like that a lot for the Houston Astros, but I want to look at the Yankees real quick. Not going to really get too much in depth in what they got in return, but it's weird seeing the Yankees trading off veteran players, right, for prospects in return. I mean, they did that at the trade deadline this year, moving Miller and Chapman for a ton that was able to totally revamp their farm system. So they continued to move on into this younger direction and maybe save a little payroll for Bryce Harper in the future. But then you you look at this, Gary Sanchez. I mean, you have him to fill in immediately as your everyday catcher for the Yankees. So you can afford to move a guy like McCann. And you get a couple arms in return, so that's a win for the Yankees. I'm liking what I see so far on their end. And over on the Astros side of things, yes, this is a good move. I mean, they have a young team, right? They have Alec Berg, Alex Bregman, excuse me, emerging last season, young player, 22 years old, showing a lot of pop, can play third, can play short, but obviously you have Carlos Correa over at shortstop. So you have this young infield headed by Jose Altuve, well, Tuve is a legitimate MVP candidate, does so many different things for you on the bases, at the plate. And you this luxury with McCann now, he can be, he can play first for you. Not sure they're going to use him as, as a catcher so much. But I'm interested to see, because they have Jason Castro as a free agent right now. Are they going to try and extend him? You know, Are they going to try and re-sign him? That's interesting. Keep an eye on that. As of November 17th, Jason Castro is still a free agent. So you look at McCann and uh, Evan Gaddis, those are your two catchers right now. McCann can still play. He's 32 years old. He's still got pop hitting. He hits over 20 home runs a season, 20 or more home runs a season every season, except maybe once, you know. 
So he's, I love it. I really do like the move. You add a 32-year-old veteran presence. He's been on good teams in the past, knows how to win. And it looks, I mean, like I said, this Astros team needs more of that. You look at their rotation with Keuchel, McHugh, McCullers, and Mike Fires, and even Charlie Morton. I look at that rotation. They're about a, a one or a two away from being legitimate contenders next season. And you add in the fact that they signed Josh Reddick, and that totally makes that outfield legitimate. I, I look at, I look across the board and I say, wow, on paper, they have value. So I, I'm in, I love Major League Baseball, offseason, hot stove, winter meetings. Winter meetings is when it really heats up, guys, like really, really gets going. You have all these different conversations, rumors flying around over, what is it, four-day span or so. It's just so much fun. To be on the outside looking in, just refreshing Twitter every single second of the day, like all day, it's the best. It's the best. But overall, I like the move on both sides, and I mentioned Carlos Correa, and I also talked about it earlier in the show. If you're still listening on blogtalkradio.com, thank you very much. This is Behind the Pen. If you're on YouTube, what's up, guys? You guys are awesome. But I mentioned earlier in the show that Carlos Correa is among one of the more uh, best young players in the game today, and literally he could do it all. He can do it all on the field, and he's only 22 himself. He finished 2016 with 20 home runs and an 811 OPS with 96 RBI. I mean, this guy, he's got mad power, great defensive shortstop. Then you add in Alex Bregman, 22 years old as well, and in 201 at-bats this year, hits 264, 313, shows a little bit of power, eight home runs. They got something here in Houston, guys. And you know what? If it's interesting. That's why, to me, this young, filled roster. I mean, they took a similar route to what the Cubs did. Right? The Cubs just really landed. Uh, I, I guess how you can call it luck in some sorts. Because if you look at the Cubs situation, Joe Madden pretty much fell into their laps, right? And they were able to finagle Houston. But that's just great management. I'm uh, not Houston, Oakland for Addison Russell and players like that. But Houston took a similar approach in which they were they were very bad for consecutive seasons, banked on high draft picks, and developed this young farm system from the ground up to make your major league club credible. Now they're in a position where, okay, they have their pieces where they know who's good and who's expendable. Are they going to go out and get a Chris Sale? That'll totally change the game for the Houston Astros. So excited. Excited for the Astros going into next season. I'm glad they're in the, they're in, they're in the uh, American League West now and not in the NL Central anymore because that would have been an insane race just two years ago in 2015, but we don't have to worry about them as much, maybe not until the postseason, uh, as late as the World Series if you're a Cubs fan, but the Astros, legitimate players in the market this whole hot stove season. Can't wait. Can't wait. That'll do it for the Major League Baseball portion of this podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening. Hope I entertained you a little bit. And with that, I love baseball. There's going to be much more baseball conversation moving forward on Behind the Pencil. So stay tuned for that. But I want to transition now into Chicago Bulls basketball. I, You know what? Wow. Wow. That's, I guess, what I have to say about the Bulls right now. Because going into this season, really into the offseason, actually, let me go back even further. Last year, by the deadline... I've repeated myself a lot here on the show, and if you guys have been listening, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, the direction of this team. Boy, I was in question of the direction of this team. Wanted them to trade Powell. They had an opportunity to do so. Failed. Said they were going to resign him. They didn't. He walked. Now he's on San Antonio. Got no value for him. 
They were labeled championship contenders going into that season, missed the playoffs in a weak uh, Eastern Conference. Then you move on to the offseason, okay? They trade Derrick Rose, and I'm not going to go into this because I do this every single show, but I have to because it just pisses me off so much. Trade Derrick Rose, get some nice return. I like Robin Lopez, what I've seen so far. And so, okay, you're moving in the right direction. You're getting younger. Keep Jimmy Butler. I'm okay with that. But then they go out and sign Rajon Rondo and Dwayne Wade. Now, Dwayne Wade was more, to me, a signing of, well, okay, you're marketable. You're extremely marketable with Dwayne Wade. He's uh, the face, really, one of the major faces of the NBA. Does so much for the community as well. Just really a likable guy, right? And, of course, he's got skill. Of course he's got skill, but he's, he's, he's getting old. He's got injury history. Obviously, that's a concern, but he's still a quality player. I had a problem with the signing of Rajon Rondo. I don't like Rajon Rondo, and I still don't. I hope he fails in Chicago, and I hope he's out of here after year one. Because they have guys like Jerry and Grant, who I'm excited. To, I'm excited to watch. Hopefully, he gets meaningful minutes, and I'll get to him soon. But I just wanted to talk about the direction of the Bulls before I get into this conversation. I was ready for them to get into a, sort of a retool mood, right? In quotes, retool. That's what. You know, the, the brain trust there in Garpak said and called it. But I was ready for them to go in a direction where you rely on young players, you get young players, get draft picks, and kind of build from within and go from there. They ended up trading Tony Snell, who was garbage, to absolutely terrible. Michael Carter-Williams, so far, really haven't... You know, there's really nothing... I mean, he is what he is. He's just like a poor man's Rajon Rondo, sort of, in his play style. I like he's young, I guess. I can't complain. This roster right now, and without Derrick Rose, I'll tell you what, if you didn't think Jimmy Butler and Derrick Rose were not getting along last year and it attributed to the fact that they were bad, well, then this year tells you that that has to be at least somewhat true because this looks like an entirely different team without Derrick Rose. Yeah, you add in a guy like Dwayne Wade, a positive locker room presence, and you give the entire locker room over to Jimmy Butler completely and away from a pissed-off Joakim Noah and Derrick Rose, who was too busy listening to his body to even think about being a team leader, so whatever. Glad Derrick Rose is gone, hopefully forever. He never comes back to Chicago, but honestly, I, I like it. I, it's a little refreshing here, and I say that because it gives Fred Hoiberg a chance to do what he wants in terms of coaching style, right? I'm seeing why... They were so interested in Fred Hoiberg and his system, this run-and-gun system, this pacing system where they push the floor consistently, but they rely on shooters. Yes, they rely on shooters. But they have playmakers on this team, and especially like when the shot clock's running down, you notice this. They're like, Dwayne, Dwayne, Jimmy, Jimmy, shoot, do something, uh, whatever, do something, anything. And that's kind of their offense, and it worries me. A little bit in that sense because when you move on later into the game and you're playing possession by possession, right? It's like a one, two, one possession game and you're just having empty ones, right? You got to have, I don't know. That's that's something I kind of noticed and I'm a little worried about, skeptical with the Chicago Bulls at this point. And two, it's sort of easy to defend them in certain situations. If you put four men with a foot in the paint, it's like, okay. What are you going to do now? You can't shoot. I think Rajon Rondo is the worst uh, field goal percentage in the NBA to this point. And obviously, he's not a shooter. I just don't like Rajon Rondo. His value is over-exaggerated, in my opinion. Yeah, he's a, he's a great passer, but he sucks on defense now. He's nowhere near the defender he was in Boston. He gambles a lot on that side of the ball, goes for steals wildly a lot. 
and he can't shoot. Can't do anything. He doesn't really score either anymore, but whatever, I guess. I We have to deal with him for one year as Bulls fans, but whatever. That's fine. But I look at this roster, and it's guys like Jerry and Grant who's getting me excited. And I want to stay positive because I'm going to bring up Bobby Portis in a minute, and I just don't know about him. Uh, anyway, then you have guys like Cristiano Felicio. Cristiano Felicio should be getting more minutes over Bobby Portis, in my opinion. I like I. I don't know how limited his offensive game is, but he plays hard. He knows what he's doing on the defensive side of the ball, and you need that. And he's uh, a solid presence underneath uh, that the basket in the front court in terms of rebounding and, and positioning on the defensive side specifically. On offense, his game's going to take time to develop. That's uh, an obvious thing. But I, I like what I see from... I'm a big fan of Felicio. Free Felicio, guys. So I'm going to keep saying it. Doug McDermott. McDermott's dealing with a concussion right now, but... He's a player under Fred Hoiberg who strive, who will strive. The, Hoiberg is a coach that will play to his strength and try and kind of manipulate the offensive sets to get him in positions to succeed, and I like that. McDermott isn't limited to just being a off-the-ball shooter or uh, you know, a jump shot sort of guy. He's not relied on that specifically. He can get to the hole. He, he was dunking last year. White man can get up there, Doug McDermott. I love it. Love it. Those are young players. You know, Desmond Valentine, I'm not sure if he's going to get meaningful minutes anytime soon. I feel like he's got to work his way onto the court. We'll see what happens. I am excited about the pick. Don't get me wrong. Well, I, we just got to let him progress through the motions here in the NBA because you can't, unless you're I, I, a game-changing type talent, you're not going to find success immediately in the NBA. So it's okay. You know, Denzel Valentine... He will probably do well in this offense. He's got a, a solid skill set there. And I look at Taj Gibson. I know he's not a young player, but I would argue that he was their, the Chicago Bulls' most productive player last season. And he's showing it again this year. He does so much for you on both ends of the floor. So, you know what? It isn't all that bad. I was very, very down on the Chicago Bulls going into this season, although I was on record of saying I think they could be a six seed. I think that well, for sure. I think they're going to make the playoffs, and I've been saying that ever since they signed Rondo and Wade. They were they, this is a playoff team for sure, and maybe they're good enough to be a six seed. Right now, they're doing they're doing quite well. I look at the uh, overall stats, and they're eleventh in scoring, the hundred and six per game through twelve. What it is now on November seventeenth, I believe they're playing the Jazz as I'm doing this podcast, so that may fluctuate a little bit in the coming days. But no, obviously, like. So far, so good. I can't really have any... I'm not really complaining too much about the Chicago Bulls, except really Bobby Portis. Is he good, guys? You tell me. Because I'm not sure yet. Like, last year, I was like, whoa, whoa, nice. Like, Bobby Portis, aggressive. Doing things where he's creating his own shot, and whenever he had the ball in his hands, he would shoot. So I'm like, okay, might as well, because this team's garbage, so go. You know, just play. But right now, I don't know. I'm not seeing... I'm seeing a lot of inexperience. He's getting beat down low. A, and then you have Nikola Mirotic, stretch four. I know the game's evolved to the point where you need a stretch four on your roster, but is Mirotic that guy? I feel like he's just so inconsistent on the offensive side, and he doesn't have a position. Right on, uh, he's just terrible defensively. Like I, he's just a cone out there, but he doesn't he doesn't compensate for the lack of defense that he provides. So obviously, there's going to be questions with this Bulls team going throughout the year. If they deal with any sort of injuries, it's going to be tough. Like, they could go through a stretch where they struggle to win games, even at the bottom of the East. So, uh, it's early. I'm encouraged. I like Jerry and Grant. 
I was so happy to see him succeed in the start that he was able to have uh, while Rajon Rondo is nursing an ankle injury. Hey, take your time, Rondo, by the way. You can stay out as long as you want. I mean, they, they're not suffering without you. And by the way, I guess the Bulls are a little uh, flexible now with the uh, headband rule that they had in place. I bet you Ben Wallace is a little pissed off, huh? As I would be. Anyway, if I was Ben Wallace, yeah, I'd be pissed. I'd be like, what the hell, man? I, my, uh, I, did, I love Ben Wallace, by the way. But he had his dreads and then he had his afro. It just didn't look right without a headband, right? And the Bulls were like, no, no, we're not letting you wear it. So, nah, hey, whatever, whatever. But yeah, no, going back to the Bulls conversation. They're going to be a playoff team, in my opinion, but right now it's really early in the season, and you guys tell me what you saw in the comments below so far through 12 games. I'm encouraged. Like I said, Jerry and Grant stepped in for Rajon Rondo, had a nice game, one point below his career high with uh, 18 the other night, had five steals, that's a career high. Played Damian Lillard really tightly throughout the entire contest. I saw that. You know, I appreciate good defense, especially since Thibodeau, you know, left. I haven't really seen much of it, especially not last year. I appreciate good defense and effort on the other side of the floor. I mean, my favorite player in the history of all time is Kirk Heinrich, so you know where I stand on that. So, you know what? Jerry and Grant, keep an eye on him. I, I feel like he's one of those young guards that maybe can turn into something. But they have a nice little mix, I would say, of young players trying to find their way onto this roster, their role onto this roster, and guys that like Taj Gibson. Now, Miritich in his third year. You know, he's going to be important for the Bulls to have any success. And Robin Lopez. Robin Lopez gives you consistency down low on that front court. I like the move to acquire him. Can't really complain. Dwayne Wade, stay healthy, man. Need you out there. Jimmy Butler, you want to be paid as this big-time leader? You think you're as good as these top five, top ten players in the NBA? Prove it to me because I'm not sold yet. I'll tell you that. I mean, he's a really good player, but I don't think he's elite yet. That's just me. You guys can attack me all you want. Brad, that's Bulls conversation for today on Behind the Pen. Hope you enjoy Last and actually certainly least, it's the Chicago Bears on Behind the Pen. And I got to talk about the Bears. I, I wasn't going to do it, right? Because I was rambling a little bit. I talked half hour worth of Major League Baseball news for you. If you're on YouTube, what's up, guys? I'm here talking Chicago Bears again. And oh, they're in the news for all the wrong reasons. And I feel like that's been a trend over the last few seasons now. I mean, let's go back. Let's recap. Let's just Let's just go back in time, right? Now, okay, we are on the verge of the end of Jay Cutler's tenure here in Chicago, and for me, it's it's sad. I'm going to be honest. I'm a big fan of Jay Cutler. I believe you guys who are haters are super critical of Cutler. Yeah, he deserves some criticism for his lack of decision-making, and yes, he looks a little lethargic at times and disinterested. I understand that. I understand that, especially against Tampa. That was miserable. He deserves all the criticism in the world for that performance because he sucked. But overall, I think it's a little unfair the amount that he received because, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the quarterback position. And, okay, he came into Chicago in 2009, right? And he was with Lovey Smith. I'm not going to, I'm not here to give excuses for Jay Cutler. I'm not going to do that. I've done that enough on the show. If you guys listen, you guys know where I stand on that. I just want to talk about the organization as a whole and where we are today because going back, I was ecstatic to get Jay Cutler in 2009. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, no more Rex Grossman. No more Kyle Orton, even though Kyle Orton was pretty solid. No more Todd Collins. No more Caleb Haney. Uh, no more uh, Eric Kramer. No more Cordell Stewart. I can go on. Let me see if um if I remember. 
No more Chad Hutchinson? No more Jim Miller? I mean, Jim Miller was okay, actually. He was probably one of the better Bears quarterbacks. Anyway, so no more of that. We have a franchise guy. Yes, Jay Cutler is going to win the Super Bowl. They got the team to do it. 2009, brutal. Absolutely brutal. Okay, he, Cutler led the league in interceptions. I understand that was a bad season. Move forward, 2010. Boom, NFC Championship game. Love it. He was surrounded by a really good defense that still had the core pieces from the Super Bowl and, and that philosophy that Lovey Smith Tampa 2 still had success because you had guys like Briggs and Tillman still producing at a high level, Erlacher. It's like, okay, these guys, they're winding down in their career, so you better win now, and they had the talent to do so. But they failed, and we talked about it. And that was the beginning of the debacle of Jay Cutler, right, in 2010, because it looked like he gave up especially with his facial expressions there on the sidelines after he he, he tore his MCL in, uh, in the NFC Championship game. By the way, he gave it, his team a chance, a worse chance. Well, first of all, in the NFC Championship game, he sucked. He was not playing well at all. And he was hurting his team if he continued to play. He couldn't plant on that knee. He couldn't do it. So for those criticizing color for quitting in that game, I'm looking at you, Maurice Jones-Drew. Shut the hell up. You're an idiot. That, that's not what happened at all. So bringing Caleb Payne, we all know how it turned out. They lose. The following season, 2011, now I'll tell you what, that was the year that they would have won the Super Bowl, but what happened? Jay Cutler got hurt. He broke his thumb. And I remember the play specifically. Throws a pick. Of course he throws a pick. Against the San Diego Chargers, down the sideline, trying to make a tackle, breaks his thumb, uh, trying to do whatever. He does a little tomahawk thing, gets the ball, breaks his thumb. He's out. All the Bears really had to do, I think they were 7-1 and one at that point. And I'm doing this off, I'm sorry, I should have probably looked this up, but I think they were 7-1 or 7-2 and two through eight weeks of the season. And all they had to do really was win one game to put them at, because they had NFC, whatever, they had a, a one game. Just win one game and they're in the playoffs, essentially. Probably two. They probably need two wins in the end of it, but that's not asking a lot. Right, nine wins after going seven and one to start the season. Just win two games. Your defense won you pretty much almost all the games in 2006 when they went to the Super Bowl. Anyway, I digress. Just two games you got to win in 2011, and they failed to do that. And that is in large part because of Lovey Smith, the decision to keep in Caleb Haney, who was terrible, absolutely awful in those games, and took him way too long to bring in Josh McCown. And Josh McCown, yes, was on that 2011 roster. You can look it up. He actually played well in his two starts. I believe he finished 1-1 one and one and won the last game of the season. They finished 8-8 eight and eight that year, I do believe, without looking it up, because they, uh, they beat the Vikings in the last game of the season. I think Erlacher, like did the splits in that game, too, in the end zone when it didn't really mean anything, and that cost him the next season. But, yeah, yeah and, and that was off. They missed the playoffs. That was the year they could have won the Super Bowl. Really, if you get to the playoffs, Cutler may have been healthy in the first round or so, but nope, nope. Terrible coaching, terrible decision-making, and just not enough execution in 2011 to get there when that was the year that they had all the pieces in line. And then, of course, 2012, you go 10-6, and six, you miss the playoffs, Lovey Smith's fired. You still were in it. You still had enough there in terms of talent to get to a Super Bowl. And this is in large part because you had a franchise quarterback, you had Matt Forte, you had weapons on the outside. But, okay, so you move on from Lovey Smith. You want an offensive style sort of philosophy within the coaching staff, offensive coordinator, head coach. Bruce Arians, available. 
He even said, yeah, I thought I was going to get hired by Chicago Bears. Then I didn't. And who do they hire in replace of uh, Mr. Arians, who is still haunting the Chicago Bears to this day? And that is Dr. Death, Mark freaking Trestman. They hire Mark Trestman instead of Bruce Arians. That is the biggest mistake any franchise has ever made. Okay. And Phil Emery, the GM, what the hell? Why is he in any sort of position in terms of player development or, or responsible for bringing in talent to fill rosters? This guy's an idiot. He's an accountant. And he's getting lectured by Ted Phillips, who's an accountant. He's been an accountant for years, like 30 years. He doesn't know anything about football. He just knows numbers. Why? Who is in charge of this organization? What are you doing? The mechanics are like, ah, it's fine. Yeah, we're good. We're going to be fine. No, you're not going to be fine. You're going out and signing Jared Allen, spending all this money on, on these talents, and it's just a waste, right? And we go into it, 20, 2013. You, you bring in a guy, Mark Trestman, quarterback whisperer from Canada. My goodness, this stupid-ass guy. Doesn't run the ball. You have Matt Forte. Doesn't run the ball at all. Has no sort of run game. You throw it all on Cutler. Cutler had career seasons, yeah, under Trestman, but that's because he was throwing it 60 times a game. And of course he's going to lead the league in interceptions if he's always dropping back to pass. It doesn't make any sense. You have Matt Forte. You have a capable offensive line for the first time in Cutler's tenure, and you're making him throw 60 times a game. That's why they lose, because you can game plan for that. And their defense... Now, here's another problem. Their defense was old. And they had guys like Lance Briggs saying, I don't want to run any uh, other defense. I'm going to stick with the Tampa 2 and Lovey Smith. So here comes Mel Tucker, who, by the way, comes from Jacksonville. They were the 32nd ranked overall defense the year before. And Mel Tucker's learning a system that's not even his, and he's coaching a Tampa 2 system that he knows nothing about. And, of course, we see it over those two years, 2013-2014, historically the worst in the history of the franchise in terms of defensive production. Okay? You can blame Cutler all you want. Go ahead. He's done his fair share of throwing interceptions and turning the ball over. That's one of his big flaws. But I'll tell you what. He is not responsible for the decisions made by management, the decisions made on the roster, decisions made on the coaching staff. There's a reason why Jay Cutler has gone through three different head coaches and six different offensive coordinators and all these different systems. His, he's on his third GM. This is not... On, this is this is the Chicago Bears as a whole, a fundamental problem within the Chicago Bears as a whole. I didn't even mention the fact that they don't draft right. They suck at drafting. This is why the Chicago Bears suck today. It's because they haven't been able to operate like a legitimate franchise. And here we are, 2-7. and seven. You have a locker room that says they're done with Jay Cutler. Half of them say that they don't like him. Half of them say, yes, we do. And then the majority of them just don't give a damn anymore. And then you have John Fox, who comes in. His specialty is to take a franchise, an inept franchise, create this sort of core through young players, developing young players, and turning them into legitimate contenders in a relatively short amount of time historically. Well, we're not seeing that, and I'll tell you what, I think the magic within John Fox is just gone. I don't see it at all. This philosophy that John Fox is pushing, I said this in my Bears reaction video, and these players aren't responding to it. Then you have Alshon Jeffrey. It gets better, Bears fans. Alshon Jeffrey is suspended without pay just about $4 million he's losing in a franchise year. 
in a contract season where the Bears franchised him because they weren't sure whether or not they should sign him long-term because he hasn't been on the field enough and he's asking for Des Bryant kind of money, but he can't stay on the field because he's always hurt. So what does he do? He takes a recommended dose of whatever, the supplement that prevents anti-inflammatory injuries sort of things within the muscles. Well, it's on the banned substance list, dude. Literally look it up. Just, just take three minutes and be like, okay, NFL, can I take this? Will I get suspended for this? Yes? Okay, I won't do it. Okay, you got something else for me? All right, I'll take that. I'll take aspirin. I'll take uh, ibuprofen, whatever. Just give me something. Not this recommended dose that'll get me out four games. So I'll tell you what. Alshon Jeffrey is most likely done as a bear, in my opinion. This is pretty much it. He's not coming back. So is he even... No, I can't even tell you because he hasn't been on the field to produce. Like, this year has been bad for him to begin with. And throwing the fact that he's been missing four games... That's just tape that other teams are missing out on because he hasn't been on the field really at all throughout his career. He misses, what was it, seven games? He missed seven games last season. So, my gosh, this Bears team sucks. They need to hit on the draft. They need to hit on the draft this year. They have to have a good draft. And you know what I'm telling you? I don't want Fox back. I really don't. But I feel like he's going to be back. And I'm not really blaming Ryan Pace as much, but he's not off you know, into the nice shady green meadow either here because he's on the hook. He's responsible for where they are too, but over a two-year span, what can you say about a GM? You can't fix the entire mess of a Chicago Bears in such a short amount of time. It's a different kind of perspective for a GM as opposed to a coach. I can say fire Fox because what has he done over the last two years that warrants him to be back for next year? You know what I mean? But I feel like he's had such an impact on the construct of this roster that he has to be here for the full length of his three years in his contract. But after that, he's done. He is done. And then at that point, do you really trust this staff to hire a, a different head coach? I mean, you got to figure out something. You're going to have to draft a quarterback this year. They probably sign Hoyer as a placeholder and then let the quarterback develop. But do you want Dow Loggins doing that for you? Do you want Dow Loggins developing this young man? As your franchise quarterback? I don't think so. Not me. I don't feel good about it. But that's just, oh, gosh. There is so much into this Bears franchise to the point where they're almost like the Cleveland Browns. And it's sad to say that. I'll ask you guys this. When was the last time we saw a Bears game that meant anything? And I'll tell you, it's 2013 when they lost to the Packers in the last game of the season. That was it. Since then, it's been misery. And that leads... And this is a Chicago Bears town. This is a big football town, and nobody cares anymore. They're just turning it off. And I don't blame them. I sat through that entire uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers game, and it was miserable. That was the worst football game I've seen, really, since they got shellacked by the Packers out of the bye. And even before that, they got destroyed by the Eagles the week before that in 2014. But I can't end it on such a negative note, guys. Behind the pen, that's not how it works. Okay, I want to talk about something a little positive here on this Bears team. I like Pernell McPhee. I'm, I'm becoming a big fan of Pernell McPhee. That guy's nuts. He's like insane. If you listen to him uh, speak post game and you, you see some of his quotes in the paper or whatever, boy, I don't want to get in that guy's way, but I'm telling you, I like it. I like the fiery passion that he has. And you know what? This, this front seven is starting to take shape, and I've said this a little bit before. I like what I see. I think Akeem Hicks was a solid signing. They just got to stay healthy. Eddie Goldman's going to be a legitimate player. Leonard Floyd is stepping up to be something very solid. And you guys got, I don't know, is Craven LeBlanc going to be good? I don't know. He's a rookie. Uh, they're talk, speaking highly of him, whatever. Tracy Porter's been fine. 
right? But he's old. He's just a, a, a placeholder there. That secondary's in question. I like Adrian Amos out there, but other than that, Harold Jones Corte is just a loose cannon, just throwing his body around. He kind of reminds me of Brandon Merriweather. Oh my gosh. Do you remember Brandon Merriweather? I don't know. Okay, maybe that may be like a unfair compensation because Merriweather was a nut job and he was just literally like penalized every single freaking down. He tried to make a tackle, you know, just throwing his head into, you know, okay. But yeah, in the similar sort of play style where he's just not so much using his brain is Harold Jones Corte. But I shouldn't really complain about him so much because whatever, right? Whatever at this point. You see what you got on the field. You just let them play. And who's going to be worthy enough to gain a roster spot moving forward? And that's the state of the Chicago Bears right now. It's bad. It's very bad. I just, ugh. I'm glad I got that out, though, because I, I needed a little bit of sort of venting. And I'm, I'm, I hope you guys listen to this because, and I hope you guys understand that it's a, it's, it's a huge problem within this front office. The ineptitude of this franchise has been relevant for years now, and that's why they're not successful. They haven't made the playoffs since 2010. It's brutal. It is absolutely brutal. They've missed the playoffs in nine of the last ten seasons. That's just unacceptable, you know? So, all right, well, I mean, I got to end the show. I got to end the show. Wow, this podcast is an hour long, guys. I hope you stay tuned for all of it because I felt like that was a really fun show. Hope you had fun as well listening. My name is Mike Rankin. This is Behind the Pen. Follow us on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, at Most Valuable Pod. We'll entertain you more so there. Speaking of entertaining you more so, become a patron, please. Can you do that for us? Patreon.com backslash Most Valuable Podcast means a lot. If you don't want to do it for Ricky, Sean, Brandon, or Mark, or Dave, do it for me, right? Because I'm obviously the most important here. Also, I'm on Twitter at Rankin906. That's where all the good content is. Make sure to subscribe. Hit the like button on these Bears videos and everything, all, their, all, all these other videos. Leave comments. It's awesome. You guys are the best. Keep listening for more Behind the Pen because I'll be here. And as always, guys, we will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to this MVP podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Most Valuable Pod for more great podcasts.